0: Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Really excited to be here. Um, I love talking about this topic and many other in the Bible. So um, it, is, it is absurdly unfair to be asked to unpack and support any of these positions in 20 minutes. So I will really, we're going to do flyover and we're going to talk through a couple of verses. But, you know, I hope the Q&A goes till midnight because yeah. <laughs> that's the only way we're going to really get to... Um, You know to help you think deeply about about these topics and really so this will be a launching point for most of you to just continue your study i hope it's not going to be you know if if your position changes tonight maybe but uh, there probably probably is a lot more study you need to do if you don't have a position firmly uh, you know formed on this so i will represent the pre-mill view Uh, there are kind of two most commonly with pre-mill is also this concept of pre-trib so pre-tribulation and uh, it's not always but common and so i'll I'll represent that as well but then i'll throw in another view that's a little similar to it so the first i'll just describe kind of what is the pre-mill pre-millennial pre-tribulational view in a a brief overview and then i'll dive in maybe two or three scriptures if we have time and then some strengths and weaknesses and then we'll keep moving through the night so the first thing to say about the pre-mill pre-trib view is that at some point in the future And I I have this hunch that it may be on the Feast of Trumpets, if anyone has studied the feasts of Israel, um, at some point in the future, unknown, uh, Jesus will partially return in the clouds, as the Scripture says, and every believer will immediately disappear. There will be the, you know, the Tim LaHaye, the left-behind situation, right? If you've read those books or seen those movies, that's kind of the pre-mill, pre-trib view. And uh, so believers will disappear, as well as every dead believer will be resurrected and go straight to the clouds. Uh, and they will go up to heaven, and there will be a seven-year wedding feast with the Lamb in heaven. Um, after this, uh, not necessarily immediately after, but likely close, you know, shortly after that tribulation or that um, that uh, rapture, uh, there will be a seven-year period that begins that is known typically as the tribulation. But actually, only the second half of that time period is named in Scripture. The second three and a half time, the second half of that, the second three and a half years of that seven-year period, is known as the Great Tribulation or the Time of Jacob's Trouble. And so, in that, uh, as that seven-year period begins, um, the Antichrist will uh, will be a, he'll start as a peaceful secular ruler, and he will uh, he will. Set a a treaty with Israel and surrounding nations that will actually bring peace to the Middle East for three and a half years, Um, and this so so people will you know think very highly of this ruler who will initially come in peace, Um, but he will uh, you know overall take more and more control over world world um, order, and uh, and then three and a half years into that uh, into that seven year period, the Antichrist will go into a newly rebuilt temple, so the temple that. You know, there's been two iterations of that temple thus far, the, the Israelite temple, the temple of Solomon, will be rebuilt and, uh, and during this time or before this time. And three and a half years in, the Antichrist will go into the temple and defile it and claim himself to be God. And uh, that will usher in an enormous persecution, um, both on any new believers that have come since the rapture, as well as on Israel. Uh, and so the Antichrist will make it his goal to stamp out Israel by any means necessary, During this time, as Revelation unpacks, there will be trumpets, uh, seals, and bowls. Right? There's all there are seals, trumpets, and bowls, and there are uh, many plagues that strike the earth throughout this time period. This is a a horrific time to be on Earth. Um, There are you know hail from you know the the sun gets dark. There's hail. There's um, there's plague. There's famine. There's wars. There's all kinds of things that are happening at an extremely escalated rate at this time. and, uh, and let's see here. So, this massive persecution that I mentioned that the Jews will actually lead to, likely two-thirds of the remaining Jews on earth will be killed at this time. Only one-third will remain. And I can point to a, a passage we'll look at if we have time. But that one-third will go through the fire, and then they will see uh, Jesus return and accept Him as their Messiah. Because, uh, because I do want to be very clear that even though I do have um, a different view on God's dealing with ethnic Israel versus God's dealing with the church, um, there, there is, is only one way to heaven, and that is through Christ. So, that is, so we all share that. This is not heretical in any way. And, um, and so the, the ethnic is, Israelites will come to Christ and find Him to be their Savior when He returns, or shortly before. Um, so when Jesus does finally return at the end of that seven-year period, and he physically rescues the Jews from this unbelievable persecution, um, likely in Petra, but could be in another area, then he will travel to uh, Jerusalem. He will slay the Antichrist. He will slay the enemies of the Antichrist. So it will be an enormous battle. We've heard of the Battle of Armageddon, um, which is in the Valley of Megiddo there right, right outside of Jerusalem. And uh, then we'll usher in the millennial reign through that victory. Now, what will happen is many people will die. I mean, the, the blood will rise to, the, to a horse's bridle in this in this battle. I mean, it is unbelievable the, the bloodshed and, and, uh, that, that will occur at this time. But not everyone will die, including non-believers. There are both believers and non-believers that are humans that are brought into the millennial reign. As well as those that have been raptured, the church, will be brought back with Christ when he returns... And so there will be this strange mix of people with immortal bodies, and people that are still humans in the in the millennial reign. And there will be repopulating of the earth through those that uh, that were humans, right? They will still um, they will still have children. There will be the ability to disobey God. During that time, even though Satan will be bound. So that's an an important topic we'll probably get into. So when Christ returns and defeats Satan, he will bind him for 1,000 years, as Revelation 20 says. But then, uh, and then at the end of that 1,000 years, he will let him out for a short period. But, um, so during this 1,000 year reign, when Christ is physically on earth, in his bodily form, um, you know, has a kingdom in Jerusalem, uh, there will not be the same influence of sin on the earth. But people can still sin, and people can still defy God. And he won't utterly stamp it out whenever it happens. Although there will be, it does appear to be that there will be some punishments for, for disobeying uh, Christ and his kingdom at that time. Um, let's see, what else? So then after that, so that 1,000 years uh, uh, will be a a time of great peace, you know, great flourishing on earth, but not the ultimate end state. At the end of that 1,000 year period, Satan will be loosed once again for a very short period of time, Revelation says, and he will gather armies again, and then there will be one final battle. At the end of that battle, Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire with all sin and death forever. And that will be the point at which God will... Uh, destroy the earth by fire. He will remake everything through that fire and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And that will be the eternal state to our knowledge where there will be no more death, no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering in any way, shape or form. Um, And there are every single sentence that I said we should talk, we should point to Bible verses, right? And we won't have time uh, to get to all those verses. Uh, The new, maybe one last thing, the new Jerusalem will be a giant cube. I literally believe that, a giant cube the size of Europe that will come out uh, of, uh, of heaven and, uh, and the tree of life will be resurrected or recreated. The curse will be completely lifted and it will be like the Edenic state again at that point. So I do think we all agree we're going back to Eden. That's the final, you know, the end of the final chapter. But this is a very convoluted way of getting there, that, this pre-mill, uh, pre-trib viewpoint. So, uh, so that's kind of a, a very, very high-level overview of it. So why do I hold this position? Um, so first, because of the way that I understand prophecies and types to have been fulfilled throughout Scripture. This is probably the most important thing, and this is something where uh, you know, uh, Brian mentioned, don't get lost in the uh, the forest for the trees, right? Maybe if I say something about the, the pre-mill um, viewpoint, it's that you do, we do look at the trees in a lot of detail, <laughs> Um, Now, that doesn't mean, I don't think I've lost a view of the forest, but you can get lost, you know, you can lose sight of the forest because we look at every single prophecy and the specifics of that prophecy and the wording of that prophecy, and we say, that's going to be fulfilled quite literally, just as it was said. Mm -hmm. And so that's, and and the reason that I I feel pretty comfortable in that that vein of thought is because if you study prophecy and its fulfillment, so probably, I don't know, depends on the estimate, but maybe up to a quarter of scripture was prophecy when it was written. I mean, there's just a massive amounts of scripture that are prophecy. And, uh, and if you study that, there's so many that have been fulfilled. And I would say the ones that have been fulfilled, you see this type of specific fulfillment to them. And so I'm very comfortable saying, okay, prophecy that I haven't seen fulfilled this way, I would expect to have that same kind of specificity to it. Um, now, this does not mean, now symbols are still symbols. And you still have to understand what's written in context and all that. So I'm not I'm not trying to ignore some of that. I'm not saying that um, the dragon in Revelation is actually a dragon. I believe that's Satan. It's a symbol for Satan. But if you can if you can line up what the symbol is with a one-to-one match of something that is uh, an earthly reality or could be an earthly reality, that's the kind of thing we're talking about with the pre-trib or a pre-premill uh, mindset. Um, and maybe maybe just one thing to point out. We don't we won't have time to spend in Daniel at least in this initial session. But so Daniel is an amazing book, probably my favorite book in, in the Bible. And uh, there's a I have a seven hour teaching on it if you want to actually dive into these these passages in more detail. But but the second half of Daniel is is highly prophetical, and there are so many symbols throughout that second half of Daniel. And Daniel is prof, is apocalyptic literature, right? And so. What you see in Daniel is most of the second half of Daniel has already been fulfilled. And we can point to historical realities, at least I think we can point to historical realities that specifically fulfill in, in, in very concrete, obvious ways, the prophecies that Daniel gave at that time. However, from the end of Daniel chapter 11 through chapter 12, we don't see obvious historical concurrence with what, what Daniel wrote. And so I would say... Okay, if, you, if we look at Daniel 11 and 12, you will find lots of things that are very specific about an Antichrist and what he's going to do and this, this temple and all this stuff. And I say, well, that's got to happen. It's going to have to happen just the way that Daniel 7 through 10, 7 through 11 have been fulfilled. Um, so that's one, one major reason, is, is the study of prophecy, my study of the fulfillment of prophecies that have been fulfilled. The second reason I believe this is because I do believe it's the most natural way to read the texts. Now, note, that does not mean literal way to read the text. Again, a dragon, I don't think a dragon is going to reign. I think Satan, as a symbol of the dragon, will, will reign at the end, um, during the tribulation. And so I do, I do think it is, if you just read, like, for instance, Revelation 20, which I may get a couple minutes with Revelation 20 here, Revelation 20, it's kind of, I would say, it's almost self-explanatory what's being said there. You know, It's talking about uh, a thousand-year period, and it's talking about people rising after that thousand-year period, and it's talking about Satan being loosed after the thousand-year period. And I just think, boom, 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 that's all going to happen, just like it says. So there's kind of a, I think it's a natural way to read the text. Um, the third reason I would say is because of the existence of the, of the nation-state of Israel today. Um, I, it is an unfathomable uh, thing that a people group, would be destroyed, utterly destroyed, sent to a diaspora. So that means they were sent all over. They were unable. They were. They were literally not allowed to be in Jerusalem, and in the surrounding in Judean in surrounding area by Rome. They were kicked out because of the rebellion. To be dispersed across the earth for 2,000 years, their language to be dead. The Hebrew language was dead for 2,000 years, just like Latin is a dead language. The Hebrew was a dead language for 2,000 years, and the, that for whatever reason. You can say God did it, or you can just say coincidence, but it seems very unlikely to be coincidence that 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 people group, that we all think was an important people group that God was working with in the Old Testament, would now come back and be living in that land now, and that Hebrew would be the language spoken and written in that land now. So, I do think it is not coincidence that that Israel exists today, Um, and uh, I think that's part of it. Although, although it's interesting, there are there are some some uh, pre-trib, or sorry, pre-mill and, and pre-trib writers who were writing about Israel must become a nation again before Israel became a nation in the 1800s, and so interesting to see that people had faith that it was going to happen even before it did. And then the last, the last reason. This is a bit technical, but the last reason I hold to this view is I believe it's highly unlikely that the Book of Revelation was written before 70 A.D. Now, why is that important? What does that, what does that mean to anything? Okay, so 70 A.D. was when the when the Romans destroyed um, the, the, the Israel. They destroyed Jerusalem. They kicked all the inhabitants out. They destroyed the temple. Literally, here's a they literally tore the temple the temple t- stone by stone. Not one stone was left upon another when the Romans uh, overthrew the Israelites. And and, uh, and the reason that they did that was to get all the gold out. The temple was filled with gold, and the Romans had burned it down, and they wanted to get all the gold out. So, again, that's just an ex- it's like a, a small little snippet of the way that I see prophecy fulfillment. It was literally fulfilled that not one stone would be left upon another. Not generally fulfilled that the temple would be overthrown or destroyed. So, um, so anyway, um, if Revelation was written before 70 A.D., you could potentially argue that a lot of things talked about in Revelation are about this, this destruction of Jerusalem that's going to happen in 70 A.D., However, I would argue that if it's written after 70 AD, it doesn't make a lot of sense that you'd be pointing back to the destruction of 70 AD and saying that um, and saying that this is you know prophetic apocalyptic scripture, and so. Um, I think a strong, there's a strong case that can be made based on early church fathers who reference that John was sent to the island of Patmos during the reign of Domitian, which was in the 90s, not the 70s AD, so after the destruction of the temple. And there's some other historical facts that I think corroborate uh, John's being sent into exile later than 70 AD. And so that's very detailed. I won't have time to get into that. But if, in fact, it's written after 70 AD, I don't think we can say that that Revelation primarily refers to um, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Okay, so I've got six minutes left, and I've been through one out of my three pages. So what we will do is uh, we're going to look just briefly at Romans, Romans 9 through 11, which I th- maybe some other folks will hit on as well. And and we will, and the point that I just want to draw out is if you don't hear anything else, what I'm going to try to draw out is this concept that Paul has distinctive categories in his mind between um, ethnic Israel and between the church, okay? And then I'll explain why I think that's important. So, in Romans 9, I won't, I won't talk about, you know, what's... I won't, we won't read Romans 9. We'll read a little bit of Romans 11 with the time we have. So, in Romans 9, um, it talks about God's sovereign election, right? And it's where uh, God chooses uh, Jacob over Esau, right? And, and it says, you know, God did that before they had done anything, and essentially this concept that God is sovereign over everything, including your salvation, including all events. God is sovereign, and he chooses... He has, he, nothing, nothing bounds, binds his will. He does what he wants to do, no matter what. And it's our job to submit to that. Um, but anyway, so Romans 9 is about that. Um, then Romans 10, Paul's heart aches for his fellow Israelites. He wants them to be saved so badly. And I mean, when I say his fellow Israelites, his ethnic fellow Israelites. And he explains how to be saved, which is by faith alone in Romans 10. He advocates heavily for evangelism to the Jews in, in chapter 10. And then he references a few more Old Testament prophecies about Israel's hardening and the Gentiles' salvation. So, Romans 11, let's read a few verses in Romans 11. Paul says, I ask then, did God reject his people, i.e., the Israelites? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer? I have I have reserved for myself 7000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So Paul is saying, look, even even if Israel by and large has rejected the Messiah, there is a remnant and there always will be a remnant of Israel that God will save. And that makes God faithful to his promise. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. Um, for if it were, if it were grace, it would no longer be grace. What then? What, Israel, uh, what then? what Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, i.e. Eh? the rest of the nation was hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear, to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Again, he is talking about Israel, right? So I'm talking about the Israelites. Did they did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, but because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. So right here we have a category. Paul is saying there are Gentiles that uh, salvation has come to them, and that's all, probably most of us in this room, the Gentiles who have been brought in because of Israel's transgression. And here in in verse 11, it says, to make Israel envious. That's interesting. But if their transgression, if Israel's transgression, their hardening means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, i.e. salvation for us, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? So what does the fullness mean of Israel here? I am talking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in hope that I may somehow arouse my own people, i.e. ethnic Israel, to envy and save some of them. Here's here's a key verse, verse 15. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, i.e. the Gentiles, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And so a a pre-mill position is that Israel returns to Christ and their return to Christ is what ushers in the resurrection of the dead. If the part of the dough offered as first roots is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And then I'll jump to verse 25 here. I do not want, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel is speaking plainly now. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with him when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. So this is very important. I believe that Israel is still loved by God on account of the patriarchs. Okay. <clears throat> Because he is talking about Israel here in the ethnic sense as a separate entity than those saved Gentiles throughout this whole passage. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so too, have, um, so too have now become disobedient, so they too have now become disobedient, i.e. the Jews have now become disobedient, in order that they too may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So this is, and and uh, and this will be maybe clear as as other people speak about this dynamic of the church um, taking up the mantle of the promises that were given to Israel. That's the other viewpoints um, believe that, that the church is, is that the promises of God are kind of uh, I don't want to say singular, but they they carry through a one people group that God is working with, and that was Israel in the Old Testament, true Israel, a subset of Israel, and now has become the church in the New Testament. And I'm saying, no, I believe they are still separate categories. Again, only one way to salvation, only one way through Christ, but God still thinks about them differently. Um, so, let's see here. We will have no time to talk about Zechariah 14. Please write down Zechariah 13 and 14 in your notes. That is a very interesting passage about, the, about what happens when Christ returns. Very detailed, very specific I think, very difficult to interpret besides this concept of just looking at every tree and saying, that must be what happens. When Christ returns, he's going to put droughts on certain people. When Christ returns, the bells, there's going to be bells on horses that say certain things and all this stuff. So, um, and I know I'm out of time here, so I'm, I'm just going to do real quick weaknesses um, of this position. So, the first thing I say is, it's convoluted or complicated. There's a lot of stuff that I think happens between now and the millennial reign and the eternal state. There's all kinds of crazy stuff that's, that's going to happen. Um, but I would argue, counter-argue say that, that that's actually how God has worked all along. If you think about how he worked with Adam and then he kicked him, why didn't he just get rid of Adam and start fresh? No, he kicked him out of the garden, but he still worked with him. Then why did God kill everyone on earth except for eight people in the flood? That's a crazy way to work. But that's how God decided to work. I'm going I'm to kill everything and everyone on earth except for eight people. I'm going to restart with them. If you think about the way he has two comings of the Messiah, the Jews in the Old Testament didn't really see that, right? They saw a coming of the Messiah that was going to be both a political and spiritual ruler, and that's why they missed Jesus. But no, there's this, there's this gap of at least 2,000 years between his first and second coming. There's all kinds of strange ways that the way God works. And so, again, I don't, I don't see it too too odd that, that the future is going to be strange as well. Um, the day of the Lord, here's another a weakness of this view. The day of the Lord and the coming of the Son of Man must be kind of separate events or two events that kind of encompass a time period as opposed to just a single day, right? And so sometimes when you read these passages, it may look like, it kind of looks like it's a single day, a single event. And I would point to a concept called prophetic telescoping that could potentially explain that we may get into later. Um, another, Another weakness of this view is the idea of Gentiles being grafted into Israel. That's a very strong passage that kind of you can argue, means that now the church is is the continuation of, of who God is working with. And, the, and God is working with the church, don't get me wrong. But um, the church, it, it, through these passages, this concept that, that Gentiles have been grafted into Israel and that not all Israel is Israel, some of these passages related to that, may make you think that, okay, well, that, that means that Israel is the continuation of, of who God is working with and <laughs> ethnic Israel no longer matters moving forward. Um, and then also discussions around Christians being the temple, right? That muddies the water on, okay, do we need a future temple if we are the temple now? Things like that. So there are definitely some passages that, uh, that are good you know, proof texts or texts for other, other views. Um, and since I am out of time and I said I would keep to it, I won't get into all the application of this view, viewpoint. But, uh, but hopefully that gives you a very, very rough lay of the land. And hopefully I can talk more about it in a little bit.